still here live at Jamstack Conf in San Francisco, and I'm sitting here with Sean, is it Urquhart? Urquhart, yeah. Are you a React developer who builds large applications for your organization? With NX, you can build your apps in a monorepo alongside your backend code and share code between React and other frameworks. You'll also get advanced code generation and automatically configured tooling like Cypress, Jest, and Prettier to simplify your workload. You'll build higher quality apps, share more across teams, and focus less time on configuration. Visit nx.dev react to get Narwhal's free open source set of extensible dev tools. Why don't you just tell us a little about yourself? Cool. Well, uh, yeah, I work for Netlify. I run the Netlify CMS open source project. I've been in de development for about 10 years, pretty much all front end. I've done a little bit of everything. I've done the big, the big corporate stuff. I've done freelance. Um, I've been with Netlify for about two and a half years. I've been leading the Netlify CMS project the whole time. Right. Um, and so my focus has been the Jamstack and using Git-based content management to simplify the CMS story for Jamstack sites. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, it's actually interesting because I've talked to some of the sponsors here at Jamstack Conf and some of the CMS vendors, they, yeah, they, ha they have a back end that's not Git, right? It, right. Exactly. It's a custom back end. Yeah. As I talked that. to them, I was like, you know what, I kind of need it on Git because, you know, we're, we're doing a Jamstack site for devchat.tv and I want people to be able to submit pull requests and things like that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so it works, it works really well for that. Um, and it's, you know, kind of what I went over in my talk is, and it's a story that we just, we really have to start telling a lot where, you know, a static site generator really already knows what it wants. It's already mm -hmm. really opinionated. And so it wants to see Markdown. And again, this isn't, you know, there's some like Gatsby and some, and uh, right. uh, what's the other, Nux, Nux uh, Gritsum yeah. um, that are uh, pretty futuristic. And so they, they can take content from anywhere. And yeah, uh, but generally static site generators want to see Markdown and YAML files sitting in your repo. And so the idea was always that, uh, you know, a developer can write those things and they're happy to write them. And so you, you don't really need a content management system, right. but at scale you do. Everyone isn't going to yeah. write those things. Everyone doesn't know Git. And so you just have this a little job where you need someone to be able to type things into a traditional CMS UI. And then out the other side, you get that markdown and all that stuff in yep. the file system and then Git provides that bridge. You have your repo in GitHub and mm -hmm. you're able to just basically build blobs and trees and push commits. Yeah, for our team, for example, we have six show notes writers mm -hmm. and content manager. All of those people are not developers, right? And right. so right. yeah, I try to get them to learn Markdown and then I gave up on trying to get them to learn Markdown. <laughs> you know, I'm, heard you, I'm sure you've heard this story before, right? Oh yeah. And so I'm like, okay, so I need something else, right? And we were on WordPress before, but Sure. Managing WordPress was a headache, and I was yeah. the one that had to do it. So we hooked Netlify CMS up, and it worked pretty well. There are a few things I wish it did that sure. it doesn't. Sure. But it's like, okay, you know, just go in and, yeah. Yep. It's interesting. It's still a pretty nascent space, you yeah. know? And one of the interesting things about Git-based content management is that it makes a lot of old problems new again, problems right. that have long been solved. And I've heard people kind of gripe about this, and I, I, I can't say I disagree. For example, simple things like relations. I mm -hmm. create an author in WordPress, and then you know I can assign that author to a post. Like mm -hmm. that's, You have a relational database sitting there. It's very simple, but when everything is in Git, it's not as simple. There are a lot of edge cases and a right. lot of weird things. There's how many requests do I need to make to get everything I need. Um, so it's very doable, but mm -hmm. again, it's a new problem. We don't have all the, the perfect solutions. And so um, people come in, they like the value proposition, and then they, but then they run into some things and they go, eh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back to WordPress, or I'm gonna, I'm gonna use right. this headless CMS over there. So, you know, so it's, 
it's still pretty new. It's got some, yeah. some growing pains. Yeah, I think the thing that I'm running into is something very similar to that where, you know, we have podcast hosts. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I have a bunch of metadata for it. Same thing with the podcasts themselves, right? right, right. I've got, you know, here's where the image is stored. Here's where the, here's the title. Here's, you know, all this other information about it. And Netlify CMS works really well for managing those markdown files, but it doesn't really give me a good way of managing the data files. Is it one markdown file and one data file per episode? No. Oh, because okay. you have one data file with a bunch of metadata for different episodes. No, the metadata goes into the markdown file for okay. the episode, okay. but the podcast itself, the overarching show, all oh, the metadata okay. for that goes into its own file. Oh, okay. Gotcha. And so if I want to create a new show, it'd be nice if I could just go in and say, okay, you know, create a new data file for it. Uh-huh. Yeah. You should be able to. If you send me some info, I can, I'd be happy to help you. Awesome. <laughs> get that going. I found myself ending a lot of conversations that way with people here. Yeah. We go through stuff and they say, well, I tried it, but I ran into this. I'm like, well, send me your info. <laughs> yeah. So I'll help you out. But that's really what it comes down to for me is I, I, need, to, I need to stay on top of you know, implementing it over and over oh, yeah. again so I can stay close to what people are actually experiencing. Yep. You know? so. Yeah. But uh, I've been pretty impressed with just how robust it is. Nice. Because, you know, my, my team, they can put in whatever it is that we need for the show and it, right, right. you know, it goes in and then, of course, I'm the nerd that goes in and edits the markdown directly. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, CMS, yeah. edit the markdown. With Git-based content management, we had, I don't know if I should, this is being recorded, I'm going to say it anyway, I had, when I first started at Netlify, I wanted to make a blog post called Netlify CMS Sucks and our, our uh -huh. co-founder, Chris, just didn't laugh, didn't think it was, I never brought it up again. But my, my, and of course I don't think it sucks, but my, my point was we kept having all these people come in and say, oh, well, WordPress does this. Oh, well, this does that. And it's right. like, if you don't value Git-based content management, mm -hmm. if that's not the reason you're here, go use a different CMS. Oh, yeah. Because it's, that's the value proposition and you're going to give up a few things for the sake of having that Git-based story that I went yeah. over in the talk. We have this tiny CMS that lives on a CDN. I mean, It's all simple. That stuff. It's clean. It's yeah. nice. Yeah. It's, a, it's almost a non-entity in your stack. You could, you could add Netlify CMS today and remove it tomorrow and you'd never even know it was there. You know, and that's kind of the beauty of it. And yeah. so we're, and, and you know, as we go forward, we're working on the robustness and all that. But yeah, the, the Git base is the value. So if you, right. if you value that, maybe it's worth it. You know? Yeah. And if I remember right, it actually connects to the GitHub API and yep. yeah, we got a, we have a backend registration where you can. Um, so we have a GitHub backend, a, a Bitbucket, GitLab. Mm -hmm. A lot of the community contributed to those. We have one of our uh, Tony Alves, one of our longtime maintainers. He created a Firebase backend. Oh wow! For Netlify CMS, I'm like, damn it, Tony, this is not what we're doing here. But it, it works yeah. though. You know, it can. T it's really just you know whatever API you want. I think. And I think one. They ultimately, I don't talk about it because it, you know, but, but down the road, it should be able to work with any kind of API. Right. You know, that, that makes sense. But right now, there's, I mean, we have to tell this Git story because it's hard for people to even wrap their heads around just that, just yep. that part of it. You know, I was talking to the Forestry team about that earlier. Like, we have to get this Git-based content management story out. And once we can really, once that's a thing that people are talking about, then we can look at, yeah. hey, Netlify CMS is actually a dashboard that could pretty much do anything. So right now, we just really want to empower like Firebase. Story. <laughs> <laughs> sure, do it. So, yeah, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty interesting though the possibilities. So. Yeah, it makes sense. What's kind of the genesis of this? Was it your idea? Was it somebody else's idea and you no, built it? Or? No, it was our Matt Billman, our CEO, uh -huh. who is uh, 
responsible for, for so, so much. Uh, he actually wrote multiple content management systems. Right. Uh, over, you know, he worked at an agency where they had, I can't remember the number. Uh, it's gotten into legend now. It's like 12,000 sites a year, but it was some crazy amount uh -huh. of volume they were doing. And he built this uh, kind of in-house CMS for that, turned into a service called WebPop. I think he built another one at some point. So when he was starting Netlify, he created Netlify CMS in Ember and right. just kind of put it together. It did the job. But the whole the whole point was it was never about you know making a play to have this CMS that's the best CMS. Right. It was always about hey look, get based content management is a thing, mm -hmm. and it can be done in a way that's open source so that because when people come onto the Jamstack, invariably one of the first questions they ask is well what do I do about content management? Right. So we wanted to have an easy open source answer mm -hmm. for that that was supported, and so we provided that and we've continued to support it. It's always been you know myself and, and one other guy since like you know early 2017 when I came right. on board and. And that's kind of been it. So just enough enough investment that's it's a solid investment, but it's right. enough to just kind of keep things moving and keep momentum and, and be able to support the community. We have a great, great community. Um, I think we're up to well over 200 uh, contributors to the repo so mm -hmm. far, and, and a whole whole lot of downloads. So it's it's gotten a lot of traction. So nice. So I, I guess the other thing that I'm wondering about is you said that it was originally built in Ember, or a version of it was built in Ember. It was, yeah, it was originally in Ember, and because of the atomic deploys on Netlify, that that version can still you can still load it. We have a link somewhere you can pull it up. Right. But we ended up moving over to React before, right before I got there. I think it was uh, Brian Douglas uh, who used to work with us. <laughs> Somebody else's pain. We've had Brian it. on the show before. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody loves B Dougie, but he was the one I, I believe that was uh, that actually took the thing and pulled it. From member over to React, mm -hmm. which I think was a great move. The React community has so much momentum and uh, so great to work with. And, and so we've, you know, Nellify CMS is really, it's a React single page app. We're going to eventually get it to where it, the whole CMS is a React component. <laughs> and, oh, uh, nice. and then everything that's in it is, is already a component. All the widgets that you register, mm -hmm. they're all components. And so it's just, it's a very, very front end way to do things. Right. So, so I guess the other question I have then is, is you're talking about it being open source and you know it's a single page app and it's just deployed out there on Netlify like anything else sure, sure. so is this something I could run on my own? It doesn't have to be run on Netlify. Yeah, you can you can run it however you want. It's it's literally just a, a you know a JavaScript file that we're bundling with Webpack. You can build it anywhere. You can have your own fork of it that you know bypasses our backend system mm -hmm. and you know does anything. I mean, again, really, it's just it's just a React UI. Right. Um, and we just happen to be using it to reach out to these specific APIs to to handle things. But I mean, there's there's really not a lot of limits. If you wanted to run it, yours. I mean, there are people that are running it on S3. If you uh -huh. go into our and we've been and we've been really intentional about that. We're trying to change the name, actually. We don't we don't want people to think that people come to Netlify and Netlify is this amazing platform doing all right. these great things and there's all these engineers and people that are investing in it. And Netlify CMS, we're not. It's not the same thing. And so people right. see all the quality of Netlify and they come to Netlify CMS and mm -hmm. it doesn't quite do what they need. And then they and they go to the support team and they're like, and they're like, well, we don't really. And so we're we're trying to say, look, you know, we support this initiative. But not only do you not have to use Netlify, you can use this thing anywhere. Right. So in the docs, we have links to different things that people have created to be able to run this on, um, like I said, Amazon S3 was one of them. 
trying to think of some blanking on on the others, but there's you can run it Docker literally container. anywhere. You can literally anywhere. <laughs> yeah. So, so. Yeah. Google. What is it? I can't remember. But yeah, Google cloud, something or other. Cloud. <laughs> pla- Google Cloud Platform. Sure. My, my brain was going to GCP, and I couldn't uh, remember what it stood for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, or Microsoft Azure. Yeah. Exactly. You can. You really could run it anywhere. Yeah. They can host us. You know those those static files, and then they can. You know, right right now the backends. Go, we we're going for where people are. So GitHub, Bitbucket, mm-hmm. GitLab are the ones we have now. Right. Uh, we have a lot of requests to get. I think it's there's a Amazon has their own kind of Git provider, and so right. that's you know that's something that we'd like to see hopefully come from the community. And then uh, there was a lot of ask for uh, Microsoft's thing as well, but that's kind of died yeah, down. Yeah, Azure DevOps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's died down since yeah. they acquired a certain. Yeah, they acquired <laughs> GitHub. <laughs> so, so that's not. I still hear people having angst about it. <laughs> But they haven't done anything horrible with yeah. it yet. So when I went on to Microsoft a few months ago and I, and saw it, I went on to I think I was working on an Azure pipeline, and I saw a sign in with GitHub link, and I was like, this is the weirdest thing I have ever seen on the internet. This is so <laughs> strange. But it's yeah, my, yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. Microsoft has really embraced open source, so it's, if somebody it's good to hear. had to acquire GitHub, I mean, okay, Microsoft, yeah. <laughs> like that's you know they've they've kind of proven themselves as as much as you could ask them to. Yeah. Well, and you hear scary surveillance stories about Google or Facebook or some of these others. Sure. Yeah. You know. Yeah. It's that's a tough rap to beat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying Microsoft isn't doing it, but I'm not hearing right, right, any yeah. scary stories. We just don't know, so yeah. that's that's better. Yeah, yeah, they're either sneakier or they're right. not doing it. Anyway, I'm sure it's okay. There we go, conspiracy theories uh-huh. on JavaScript Jabber. But, but yeah, that makes sense. So, so I'm kind of envisioning because you know, I've kind of been an ops guy okay. for a long time, and, you know, and then I was a Ruby developer, and you know, then I've done a bunch of JavaScript on the front end, and so. Yeah, just kind of this movement, you know, I like to control the tool chain. Mm -hmm. And since we're using Netlify CMS on Netlify, I'm just sitting here going, yeah, but what if we could put it on our own thing, right? And so... Run it from a server in my basement. That's right. And so, you know, yeah, I just, it it was kind of a curiosity for me. Sure. So, is there a backend for it then that... You know, just manages the connection to GitHub or whatever. Or? Yeah, I mean, the, and what we call a backend. You know, again, this this whole thing runs uh, in a JavaScript file in your browser. So when we right. say you know, "quote unquote" backends, we're just talking about a file that is mapping from you know GitHub, for example, from their API to a common set of methods that right. we expect from every backend. Yeah, I'm guessing so, it's an Express app or something. Right. Well, it's not even that. It's really just um, it's just it could, because you can make you can call to GitHub's API. We need to auth through somewhere. Oh, I see. So you've just done just going straight from the browser. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. And so and Netlify actually provides a freebie auth server that you can use with localhost and then if you have a Netlify site, then you can register a auth for that. So mm-hmm. That takes care of that because that's always the tricky part is the authentication. But you know, Netlify kind of takes care of that for you, and then you can uh, from there go straight from the browser to GitHub or to Bitbucket and right. make those API calls and do all right. that stuff. So that that's where everything is happening. The, no, that makes sense because the then it there. just makes the API call, and since you've already got an authentication token with GitHub, then it just works. Yep, exactly, exactly. So you don't have to play with the backend at all. No. That, no, that, that makes yeah. a lot of people who are front end people very happy. It's very, it's very empowering. Yeah. <laughs> it just works. But again, you know, we're just we're looking at Git, and and these Git providers are really implementing Git in their APIs. And I mean, GitHub is 
I mean, they're so great to work with their API. There's oh, yeah. so much you can do. Can't tell you how many crazy things I've wanted to do. And this is this is the V3. This isn't even to speak to the, the work they're doing on their new GraphQL API. Right. Even with V3, there's some crazy, you know, Git commands that you can pull off through GitHub's API, and right. it's, it's so super helpful. And, and then now with the GraphQL API, you can really reduce a ton of those. We were, that's the thing we're seeing now is we have, we're, we're bringing on a new uh, full-time maintainer now named Arez, and before we started hiring for that position, Arez, like before we even posted it, he wasn't really trying to get a job or anything, but he, he just showed up. He rewrote our GitHub backend, which is one of the most you know, difficult to work with areas of the entire right. code base. He completely rewrote it to to work with the GraphQL API, which was something that I wanted to do. I was like, I don't have time to rewrite this. Right. Thing. But he did it, and, and it so, works. Yeah. And he was like, Well, I was I implemented it for my uh, someone that was you know had a site, and I saw all these requests, and I was like, Well, how can we make this better? And so he just did it. So nice. it's using the it, it, option. It's in beta, but it's you know it's using the GraphQL API, and so now it's using way less requests. So using uh, Git APIs over the web is getting better mm -hmm. and more and more viable. And so so yeah, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> Nice. I guess the other question I have then is, if people want to contribute to it, right, they mm. see it and they're like, well, I have this special case and I want to add something to sure. Netlify CMS, or, you know, maybe they just see something like this, right? And yeah. it's like, well, there's this other API that you guys don't take advantage of, yeah. and, you know, how do people get involved with that? Yeah, you just hop on GitHub. Well, first of all, NetlifyCMS.org is the site, and so you can go there. We have a, a page, I believe, that's titled Community, and so that has information about how to, you know, just get in, talk. We have a chatting Gitter that I'm hoping to migrate over mm -hmm. to Slack soon, and some other some other channels. Um, and then beyond that is the GitHub repo. You can right. get on there, look at issues, open issues. If you want something, there's a good chance there's already an issue open. Right. And so we really want people to go onto those issues, and if you sum up the original post for an issue, like that is the way because I can sort by how many reactions that issue got yeah. to really get, that's that's the best metric we have for gauging what everybody really, right. really wants. And the next thing we're working on is pretty much based on that metric. Mm -hmm. So that's the best thing you can do. And then of course, like you said, if you wanna contribute something and maybe it's not that high on our radar, like a, you know, Amazon Git provider or whatever their Git provider thing right. is, you know, you could, you could write that and contribute it and, you know, just be ready to, respond to whatever we say and maybe you know that's uh, that yeah. I always feel bad we have these people that come in and do such awesome work and we value our contributors we value everything that they do and um, and so but there's always a little bit of back and forth to get, make sure we're getting what right. we need for everyone no that um, makes sense but yeah yeah we're, we're very very open to contributions yeah we've had that conversation with several open source maintainers on the shows at various times is that yes you made a contribution yes it's valuable and yes, you created a whole bunch of work for us so that we can make sure that it fits well, right? And so, yeah, a lot of times we, we get that caveat where it's like, yeah, you know, we, we may be slow, we may have a bunch of questions, right. we may do a bunch of validation work on it, right. and we may not accept it right away because we just don't have the time or bandwidth right now yeah. to make yeah. sure that it fits, right? Yeah. That it that yeah. it's in line with what we want. Yeah. So, yeah, that makes sense. But yeah. I can also see somebody looking at it and saying, I want to get involved, or I see something here that mm -hmm. I want to do, mm -hmm. and it could be a bug fix, it could be right. a spelling mistake, it yep. could be, you know, and, yep. and things like that are, yeah, are super small. easy, and, you know, and then, yeah, Sean takes a minute, and he looks at it, and he goes, yeah, that's a spelling mistake, and right. he, you know, you accept the yeah, pull small. request, you yeah, know. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, you know, we're very open to that. 
and you know Netlify CMS is such a great place to learn. Um, yep. We haven't dug much into this. I'd like to get into really mentoring and setting up a community that has a, mm -hmm. a culture of mentoring because it's a front end project. You're writing React. There's so many simple issues you can yeah. get if you just to learn. Um, and so I really want to make sure that we're you know in the future hopefully being able to take better advantage of that. And so yeah. so yeah, we want to stay open to those pull requests. But community's been really forgiving with our sometimes taking time to get things in, especially yeah. when it's a big pull request kind of thing. So. Yeah. Well, into the mentorship point too. I think a lot of people there they're like, well, I want to mentor, and they're not really taking into account that they have to do a bunch of work too in order to make the mentorship yes, work, yes, right? Yes. And it's so time. it's time. And so yeah, you know, if you want to get involved, you want to get. I mean, and this is something I tell people anyway. I wrote a book on how to get a job as a developer, and it's nice. You know, you know, if you wanted to work at a company like Netlify, I mean, this is a good way to get to know people at Netlify, sure, right? Sure. But the other thing is, is that. Yeah, you know, if you just want the mentorship, if you want to be involved, yeah, go submit these pull requests, you know, yeah. start the dialogue, yeah. and then you'll get feedback. No, this doesn't fit with the project. No, this doesn't fit with the style that we do these things in. You can take the steps then to learn, okay, so what do I need to be doing? What mm -hmm. kinds of things do they want me to be working on? Yeah. And then you can, you know, as you move up, then it's like, okay, well, I kind of trust you at this level. Right. And so then you can learn things at the next level. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I totally agree. If I if I, you know, found myself without a job right now, I would find where I wanted to work that had some kind of open source culture. Yep. I would hit their open source repos and just knock their socks off. Like that's yep. that's your best. And it's not guaranteed. They don't owe no. you anything. It's open source, but that's your best shot. <laughs> like that's well, the thing is, know. is then what happens in a lot of cases, especially if they're actively involved in those open source projects, right. is then you know, boss guy comes in and says, we need a, another coder guy right. or coder girl yep. come in here, right? Yep. Yep. And knock it out. So then they're going to go, well, this yep. guy, Sean, he's yep. contributed 20 pull requests, exactly. right? Yep. And we've accepted 10 of them yep. and we're working through the other ones, but they look pretty good. Right. 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 And you're already top of mind. Like right. You can't, you can't get and, that in an and, and they don't have to train you on right. how this stuff works. Yep. So it's, yep. it's a win-win, you know, yep. you just Absolutely. showed them that you're less work to hire yeah. than somebody else. Exactly. Exactly. So and yes. that you're, you're super interested. So yeah. Yep. Agreed. So I guess the last question I have is, is let's say that I want to set this up for my team, you know, we're gonna unplug at least that piece, right, from mm -hmm. Netlify. Sure. How do you set it up? Like, what goes into it? Do you just pull the library in and just? That definitely works. The most popular way to implement Netlify CMS. So really, you have the CMS that that you know it's just a, just a JavaScript app. It has a config file, and you know you have to write in so it knows you know where your files are and what mm -hmm. fields to edit and all those kinds of things. What widgets you want to use. The easiest way to start is to use a starter. Um, and so if you go onto our doc site and hit that get, get started button, I think we're like featuring three starters right now. We just have three links, but we really need to get like a whole page of starters because right. they're, they're out there. But we have like a Gatsby starter that's easily our top entry point. Right. So, you know, um, I, there's an 11D yeah, starter. Yeah, we're using that, 11D. Yeah, Andy Bell just made an 11D starter, starter called Hilia that uses Netlify CMS. Um, and I actually put a PR in to, because I wanted to see how I hadn't worked with 11D with Netlify CMS yet. And so I, I set up a really cool system with their Nunjux templates where it's reusing. It works pretty good. Yeah, it's reusing the Nunjux templates and it's rendering them in the browser and it's super, super cool. Starters like that already give you a site that you know, looks decent, has a has a config that's already mm -hmm. set up for the CMS, and then that gives you that starting point to go. So that's definitely what I recommend. Worst Look case, if it totally doesn't fit, at least now you've played with the CMS in context and then you yeah. kind of know where to go from there. So. Yeah. Well, we're using it anyway and I'd like to be able to 
essentially, yeah, start contributing back, right? And nice. so it's, hey, we need this feature for our 11D setup, and then, yeah. you yeah. know, we can either contribute it back or we can say, well, you know, here's this little thing that you can uh -huh. sideload on it yeah. or whatever, yeah. right? Absolutely. Yeah, there's you know. th th those integration points are really the hot area right now that we're going to be focusing on is, you know, how, how does it, what does it look like to integrate a Gatsby site or an 11D site or right. a Hexo or Hugo or Jeff or whatever, you know, how do we integrate these, uh, these static site generators? And because that's where all the pain points really that we're hearing are now. Yeah. You know, so that's kind of where we're focusing next. Yeah. I guess that's another thing that I hadn't really thought about asking, but it seems pretty obvious is you're writing a CMS that works with, like you said, Gatsby, Jekyll, whatever. The Some 11, weird right? thing you made, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Hugo, maybe. I mean, you sure, know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Hugo's a primary, yeah. So how do you target all of these different systems? Because in some ways, they're all structured kind of the same, and in yeah. other ways, they do things just a little different. Um, so it's mostly through ignoring <laughs> the static site generator, which is what we're now doing the opposite of. Oh, I gotcha. Um, so when you ignore the static site generator, you say, I don't care what your static site generator is. Just tell you're me where to put everything. Markdown, YAML, JSON, TOML. Yeah. That's it. And then your static site generator can decide what it wants to do with those files. Right. So that works really great. But then you have a super-powered static site generator like Gatsby or Gritsum that are doing these crazy things, or Nuxt. Uh, we yeah. have Sarah Drasner, who uh, just loves Vue, and so she's working with Nuxt, and I assumed it would just work, and she's like, no, I'm creating a custom Nuxt module, and like two weeks later, she's like, yeah, I'm still working on it. <laughs> like, oh, it's, a whole, it's a huge pain, and I'm sure it's because she probably didn't touch it because she's busy with other stuff, but yeah. it's, a, it's a pain point. And so we've gotten to a certain point by technically working with anything by ignoring everything. Right. Now we need to say, okay, everyone's using mostly, you know, static site generators A, B, and C, so let's make Happy Paths there. So right. we have like we have a Gatsby plugin that we mm -hmm. made about a year ago. I was going to say, are you using plugins to say, this one does this and that one does that? We're getting there. We're yeah. getting there. I thought we could avoid it, but there, we cannot avoid it at all. So uh, we have a, a Gatsby plugin. So if you go to uh, Gatsby's plugins page, and you, uh -huh. they're all like automatically sorted by NPM downloads. So right. you scroll through the first CMS plugin you see is Contentful, naturally. <laughs> and then um, the next CMS plugin you see is Netlify CMS, which is actually surprising to me because there's so many huge CMSs that I'm sure people are using with Gatsby. So maybe they don't need the plugin so much or they don't, you know, some of them don't have a plugin. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But a lot of people are using that Gatsby plugin. And I estimate at least half of Netlify CMS sites are probably Gatsby. Oh, so wow. we really, and I think that's probably conservative. So we really need to make sure that that path works. So we have that, and it might be due in a large part to that Gatsby plugin. Right. So that's, that's kind of patching into their Webpack build and doing horrible things to it that we shouldn't be to build our <laughs> to build our CMS within theirs. Yeah. And that and for anyone that's listening to this that uses Gatsby and Netlify CMS and you think that last thing wasn't funny because you're experiencing these crazy long builds, um, uh, we have our our new maintainer of res and his first thing I'm putting on his desk when he gets in on Monday is to work on that problem. So that's um, so those pain points, those integrations are definitely top of mind for us right now. Yeah, well that, that makes sense, right? And again, it just comes down to who's using it, what do they yeah. need, yeah. Where, you know, where's that pain, right? 100%. And for a while, yeah, it would have been putting the content where it needed to go mm -hmm. or, you know, structuring this or structuring that. And yeah, now it's, okay, well, I'm a subcase of your case, right. Gatsby, right. and so, mm -hmm. you know, that's what we need now. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, can, I can see that. Totally. I don't know if I have any other questions for you. I'm, I'm assuming you're online somewhere where people can find you. Yes, Twitter, I am. Twitter, <laughs> I am. I am uh, at Urquhart, my last name, and no one can spell it, but it's E-R-Q-U-H-A-R-T. And uh, that I'm that on Twitter, on GitHub, and, and everywhere. So that's the, the yeah. place to, 
to find me. So my website sucks, so there's no, <laughs> no point giving, giving that out. One day I'll work on it. Yeah. Uh, that's it. What nationality is Urquhart? It is actually Scottish. Scottish? And it is Nord, there's, there's a mount, uh, castle. <laughs> I know my family history. Uh, it's a castle <laughs> called Urquhart in, uh, in Scotland. It's the Scottish name. It normally starts with the letter U. And so that's the, and so it ended up being an E for my family, but yeah, Scottish in, in origin. I am not Scottish. <laughs> so, a lot of questions there. Yeah. <laughs> so, Good deal. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for coming and uh, talking Absolutely. through this with us cool. and letting me complain a little bit about some of my issues with Netlify CMS. I love when people complain to me. Jack, it's, just, it's my favorite thing. <laughs> oh, you should be paying me then. Huh? Is, that what, is that what I'm hearing? This is therapeutic. I love this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I should be paying you. Yeah, that's, we'll talk. I'll bill you. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thanks, Sean. Awesome. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. We are here live at Jamstack Conf in uh, San Francisco. I almost said Salt Lake City. Uh, that's where I'm going Friday night. I'm going back home. We're here with Mandy Michael. You just spoke, right? I did, yeah. I spoke about variable fonts and responsive typography. Oh, that sounds interesting. Mm-hmm. It's not something I really think about when I'm thinking about making things mobile friendly, right? It's just like cram everything onto the page in the right size so you don't have to scroll left, right? Actually, one of the things that I talk about with the um, variable fonts is that, do you know much about variable fonts? Nope. Okay, so a variable font is, it's one font file that has multiple style variations in uh -huh. it, so it might be like all of the weights of a font Right. can also have all of the, the width, like condensed uh -huh. or, or wide. So when you use a variable font, you get these interpolated values, so you can like transition and animate between things. Okay. But it also means that when you're making a responsive website, if the viewport is getting smaller, you can just like squish it in a little bit, mm -hmm. so you don't have to have things stacking or wrapping right. where you don't want them to, and you can kind of fit to width. Oh, nice. Um, which is kind of a difficult thing for us to do with normal fonts at the moment, because it, it's a bit janky and mm -hmm. it feels really clunky. But variable fonts take away all the jank and just make it really smooth and feel really natural. So they're really, really awesome when you're creating responsive websites. I, I talked, that was one of the things I talked about. Do you know the CSS is awesome meme, where awesome flows out of the box? Uh -uh. It's like a classic CSS joke right. about how CSS is awesome, but it doesn't fit in the box. Um, uh -huh. With variable fonts, you can just like squish that in so it right. all fits. It's awesome. So what makes a font a variable font? So they're specifically made, like it's a it's an open type specification. They, you know, OTF, TrueType, WAF2, all those formats are still, still valid, but they're specifically made um, using this new specification. Okay. Um, so whoever makes the font has to make it have the axes and create the interpolation, and then you know you, you provide them. So it, it's not like you can convert a font to a variable uh -huh. font. You actually have to make it that way. I gotcha. 
So let's say that I find a variable font that I want to use. Do I just include it on my website the same way I do the other ones? Or? Yeah, yeah. It's totally exactly the same. You still use font face, but the way that you define variations for descriptors, like font weight or font stretch, that's slightly different. So at the moment, you would do a different font face block for each different style. With a variable font, you can just define a range. So you can say, my font weight is 200 to 900. Right. And then you can access all of the values between 200 and 900, including decimal places. And that's how you get the, the smooth transitions if you want to. So it's really similar, just a slight difference. Google Fonts supports them as well. They've got a new API that they released about a month ago. Okay. And that allows you to specify access value groups in uh, variable fonts. Uh-huh. So they've got like a handful of fonts you can use. So yeah, it's pretty similar. It doesn't change very much, which I think is a really powerful design of the specification. Gotcha. I think Matt said yesterday they want to make you know, developer experience easier so uh-huh. people can focus on the users. Right. And I think the way variable fonts have been implemented do that. Like, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about the technical implementation. Right. You can just focus on how you can use it and make things better for people that are using your sites. Very cool. So, I mean, is that it? Is that all I have to know is just, oh, go find a variable font and then I can squish things in or stretch them out to make them fit? I mean, yeah, you can do that kind of stuff. But also, um, one of the things that I like to do, because I'm not... Like, I don't make fonts. I'm right. not a web typography expert. I just like to play with things. Uh-huh. So I like to hook them into different browser sensors like okay. ambient light or device orientation and then control oh, okay. the fonts based on those inputs. Oh, I gotcha. Or scroll mm-hmm. or mouse position because that allows you to create these really engaging, interactive experiences. Like one of the demos I showed was using speech recognition mm-hmm. and there's a dragon and he breathes fire and you say a word like fire and he'll breathe text and it'll say fire oh, and cool. it'll be like flaming animated text nice or like there's another one that uses the web audio api where it listens to the volume of my voice input and the font will change depending on how oh, okay. loud i am so because you have that interpolation and you can create those transitions and animations it means that you can create more interesting experiences and you can fine-tune things or change it based on different environments and inputs Uh, and to me that is really really exciting creating custom interactive experiences based on a user's situation Mm -hmm. that's something that we're only really starting to get to do now right another one that I like do you mind if I tell you some more. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, so there's another one that's uh, the ambient light sensor. Um, So you know on your phone when you're in a low light environment Uh and it dims? Right. You can use the ambient light sensor on your laptop or your phone to change like the weight or style of the font depending Mm -hmm. on how dark or, or bright it is. So from a practical perspective, if you're going to try and improve contrast, you can make the weight a bit heavier in low light environments so it's more legible and more readable. Oh, nice. Or, which is what I like to do, you could change the whole mood and experience of your website mm-hmm. based on if it was really dark, maybe like one of my examples, the text like oozes because it's like slime. Right. So you could make like a scary mood and a really fun and bright oh, nice. mood and you can do like uh-huh. fun and interactive things with like games and storytelling. And I love the idea of being able to change the experience of your site based on right. specific individual user circumstances. I think that's really fun and really exciting. So those are the kind of things that I do. No, that's awesome. And I I love the idea. We we had a conversation a month or two ago on JavaScript Jabber, and we were talking about essentially what what is JavaScript, right? 
one of our panelists, Amy Knight, she basically said, well, JavaScript for me is the way I tell stories. Yeah. And so, yeah, this is just another aspect of that, right? Where it's, it's not necessarily then the story of how somebody gets a particular thing done, but it's, it's the feel, it's the, it's the flavor of your site. Yeah, totally, totally. You know, at the moment when we do that stuff, it's usually like illustrations mm-hmm. or stuff like that. Because doing that with text outside of uh, SVG is pretty much impossible with a standard font. So variable fonts allow us to bring all of that experience Mm -hmm. and that storytelling in with the actual text, which is often what we're actually using to tell stories. Like all of our sites Mm -hmm. use text to convey meaning. Right. And we can't do that as effectively at the moment because the fonts are so static and and not very dynamic. But now with variable fonts, you, you can have that and you can create those beautiful experiences with JavaScript, with CSS. Um, and you can, I just think that's really fun and, yep. and really exciting. And I think I said at the end of my talk, we're in a really good place right now with JavaScript and mm-hmm. CSS to create really amazing things. Right. And I just want to see people do that, you know, and experiment yep. and have fun and, and tell good stories and create good experiences, I guess. Yeah, it makes sense. And, and I love all the fun examples you gave, but even for the sort of, regular business use that, you know, maybe it wouldn't be appropriate to make it drip, right? (laughs) You know, you you can still create the legibility, the readability, Mm -hmm. the flow of the website and things like that and manage it. You did mention that, you know, you you worked on like orientation and things like that. Were those just media queries or? Uh, No. So, um, you know how phones have like a gyroscope? Uh So I use JavaScript to get the device position. So the device orientation has like three different uh, axes. Right. And you can hook into those and then you just pass that data, do a little bit of JavaScript and Mm -hmm. um, you can interact with the fonts based on that position. You have to request permission to get that? Only on iOS 13. Um, So on Android, it works fine. On iOS 13, there's, you have to request permission now, but it's kind of like with webcam or audio, it pops up with a little thing and you just go, yep. Uh, So, I mean, it's kind of a pain because it would be nice if it just kind of worked. Mm -hmm. And it used to work. When I actually made most of my demos, you didn't need to request permission. (laughs) Um, And then I made one about a month ago. And when I released it, because I have an older iPhone, mm-hmm. it works fine. Right. But anyone who had iOS 13 was like, this doesn't work. I was like, ugh. Surprise. I got to gotta add a button for, for the iOS 13 people so they can see the effect. Um, yeah. So, yeah, the security on some of the stuff requires permission. Um, yeah. But, but I, you know, I think there are ways around that. I, I don't, wouldn't want people to not experiment and have fun with it just because of that. Right. People are pretty used to that with microphones and, mm-hmm. and webcams and stuff like that. Yeah. It's fun. Cool. So are there things that you're trying to do with it now that you haven't quite gotten to work? Yeah. So the web audio stuff, what I really want to do is hook in speech recognition to web audio Mm -hmm. so that when you speak, it will interpret like the volume or the pitch or the tone so that you can change the speech to text. Mm -hmm. So instead of just having text that all looks the same, I want it to try and convey some of the intent and volume um, and meaning behind my words. But combining speech recognition and web audio doesn't work very well. Um, Speech Mm -hmm. recognition is still really new. Um, Chrome has it. Firefox will have it, I think, at the end of the month. But they don't align and there's no, like, audio 
data from right. speech recognition. So trying to get them to align is quite tricky. I'm thinking maybe I could use like machine learning or something instead. That's what I'm going to try next to try and use machine learning to listen to what I'm saying and try and um, represent right. my text, mm-hmm. speech to text in, in a more meaningful way. Because I think, you know, with Google Home and Alexa and people using voice interfaces a lot more, it would be great if you didn't lose all of that meaning that people mm-hmm. push through with their voice. I, I'd love to be able to represent that. And variable fonts enable that. It's just the technology to detect it does, isn't really there. Right. Well, they'll, they'll get that figured out on Alexa, and then they're going to think I'm a I'm an angry person. Because <laughs> I'm always like, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, maybe you want people to know that, that you're, uh, you know, you want people to know yeah. that you're upset or, or angry or happy or yeah. excited. No, and my, my kids play music on it all the time, and I'm always like, you know, after like the sixth time of turning off the noise, right, I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know. Kids gonna kid, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're gonna yeah. gonna have fun with that. But I mean, I think it, I think but that yeah. kind of stuff would be fun. And you know, we get new APIs and, and stuff all the time. So I like I just like playing with sensors yeah. and input from the user yeah. and the environment. Like I think that's yeah, that's well, exciting. And my kids would love that where we're talking in funny yeah. way, right? And have it change the shape of the font yeah. or the color of the font and exactly. the size of the font. Yeah, exactly. they'd sit there all day and just watch it do weird yeah, stuff in front of them. totally. And that's what I think is fun about it because, you know, I, I don't know if you've heard some of the people talk about how the web is dying and it's all about apps, but I feel like it doesn't need to be like that. Sometimes I think we forget about um, all of the fun things that mm-hmm. we can do on the web and maybe, you know, rather than just creating all of these games and experiences uh-huh. in apps and consoles and stuff, use the web for that fun yeah. stuff again like we did in the early days when mm-hmm. we were experimenting and javascript gives us so much cool stuff that we can yep. play with now i just don't understand why more people aren't creating these yeah well fun things and i, I think i've heard the sentiment that the web is dying but i look at it and I, I don't know if i agree with that sentiment so much it's just that we have so many more capabilities now with the devices that we use to connect to it. Totally. That is changing, right? So yeah. it's, it's not the same as what we were doing 10 years ago or yeah, even five absolutely. years ago. And so, yeah, you know, the, these options and just the, the availability of, of what we can do with it. Yeah, I mean, that, that's going to continue to grow. I and, hope so. And, and this is just one aspect of that. Now, one of my favorite things to talk to speakers about is, you know, you had, what, 25 minutes, 30 minutes to give 30 minutes. Talk? Yeah. And my experience as a speaker is that I prepare my 30-minute talk, and then I practice it a couple of times, and then I cut 30 minutes out of it so I can make my 30-minute time frame. So what did you drop? What, what did you have to cut out of your talk? Mostly detail. So for this version of the talk, uh, I wanted to be a bit more broad and not get deep into specifics right. of things. Because, yeah, get people out there to try it, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, like, there's a whole... I have a... I could talk for a whole 30 minutes just on mm-hmm. performance with variable fonts. Right. So I cut a whole bunch of stuff on um, specific things you can do with variable fonts to improve performance. Like mm-hmm. um, there's one thing that isn't really a thing at the moment, but I think would be really great is, you know, when uh, you load a font on a website and first it loads like a fallback font, mm-hmm. like Arial, and then right. it like switches and there's like a bit of a jump. Yeah. Everything kind of yeah, yeah, it reflows. Yeah, but that was the word I was looking for. Thank you. <laughs> I, I knew what you were going for, like, totally. I waved my hands in the air and she translated. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, it was spectacular. Communication, language, yeah. it's amazing. One of the things that I'd love to see is if systems, are like operating systems had a variable font, 
that you can control like the width and the, the height and mm -hmm. the size of to match your custom font right. so that when it's switched in, there was no reflow and no jank. Right. So you'd still see like a bit of a switch with the letters, mm -hmm. but you wouldn't get repainting or anything like that in the browser because it wouldn't change the space that it's taking up. Right. So that I think would be really cool. A lot of other performancey based stuff around font display and variable fonts and right. stuff, but it's not like, it's very similar to what you do with web fonts at the moment. So I cut that and I had to cut a couple of demos. Like I have one with a wizard called mm -hmm. Smello and he's a grumpy wizard. <laughs> and you do a spell and like, so you use the speech recognition and you say a spell and he'll write text in the sky. Like it'll, mm -hmm. and then it's like all magic and sparkles drop. But he only does it if it's dark enough. So if it's too bright in the room, he'll be like, nah, it's too too light for, for magic. I'm only gonna do this in the dark. <laughs> um, but, I, but it takes too long to like go through the whole process. So I right. had to cut that. And there's a few other demos that I had to cut. I had to cut the whole detail about the Google Fonts API, because just running through that is right. a bit tricky. Um, specifics on how I animated some of the effects that I showed, I had to cut some of that down. So it was really very top level stuff and I right. didn't go into like specifics on how to build up variable fonts, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Right. So the detail, a little bit of the detail got lost, but I have a website called variablefonts.dev and a lot of that stuff's on there anyway, so people can check that yeah. out if they want to. I was going to ask if there was a place where people could see the demos, so yeah. Yeah, well all the most of the demos are up on CodePen. There's a couple that I can't because of font licensing, so... I gotcha. Because I play a lot with them and I make a bunch of demos, sometimes um, font foundries will send me a font and I can like make a demo for them and put it in my talks, right. but because of the licensing issues, like I can't right. show them publicly. Some of them I will put up on my website because I can restrict it to the domain, but mm -hmm. I can't put it on CodePen because... Right you know, it's a more public thing. But yeah, pretty much all of the demos are up on CodePen, so people can go and check them out. There's like a collection called Variable Font Experiments, mm -hmm. and they're all in there, and I just keep adding to it over time. Right. Yeah, which is fun. Cool. So if people want to uh, get in touch with you or follow you on the web, is there a good place to do that? Twitter is probably the best place to get in touch with me. I don't I don't really email or right. like LinkedIn or any of that kind of stuff. Really Twitter is where I'm at. My Twitter is unfortunately not Mandy Weichel. It's Mandy underscore Kerr. People can come and find me there. And most of the time I respond to DMs like if I see them. Mm -hmm. Otherwise people can tweet at me. You can also right. message me on CodePen, but I'm less likely to see that. Right. Twitter's really where it's at for me. Right. I love Twitter. Can, can you spell that for us? M-A-N-D-Y uh -huh. underscore K-E-R-R. -K -E okay. Yeah. I'm dressed as Batgirl, so I'm really easy to find. Oh, nice. Yeah. I love Batman. <laughs> um, it's legit me dressed as Batgirl on my Twitter profile. Nice. Um, except for on October 31st. On that day, I change it to be normal professional Mandy because it's Halloween and I've got right. to like, you know. Your alter ego. Yeah, my yeah. alter ego comes out. So yeah, should be easy to find except on that day. Good deal. Yeah. All right, well, thanks for coming and, and talking through this with us. It, it's really cool. It's something I want to go play with now. So. Yeah, awesome. Um, thanks so much for having me. It's been fun. Yeah, no problem. Cool. All right, thank you. Thanks. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out.
Hey folks, I'm your host Charles Max Wood and we are live at Jamstack Conf in San Francisco and I'm talking to Tammy Everts. She's the CXO of Speedcurve and she's going to be speaking, are you speaking tomorrow or? Tomorrow today? morning, 11.30. Right, but I, I get this access to the speakers and you know, <laughs> so, so anyway, you, the conference will be over by the time you hear this so it won't matter, but yeah, Tammy was telling me a little bit about some of the stuff that she's talking about tomorrow with website performance, specifically with JavaScript performance. I've been wondering about this too, I mean devchat.tv is built on the Jamstack, right? Yeah, I pulled in all these third-party scripts, and then I wonder if it if it's going to bog it down, or you know what the implications are. And you know, Google gives me a decent speed, so you know, score. Okay. Oh, so you're using Google Lighthouse scores yeah. on your pages? Okay, cool. Yeah. So I'm watching it, but yeah, I wonder still, you know, because I mean, getting a good Lighthouse score is it means that I'm doing, you know, it's not going to penalize me on SEO. Mm -hmm. But I still want a great experience. Hey, folks! Who are coming to the website? So yeah, I love the Lighthouse scores. I think they're really helpful. We've actually we've we've integrated Lighthouse with SpeedCurve, like so we obviously oh, nice. think they're really helpful. So you can get Lighthouse scores when you use SpeedCurve. The caveat with Lighthouse, though, especially for JavaScript performance, and then especially for third-party JavaScript performance, is it's just giving you little synthetic snap, like you know, snapshots of how things are actually performing. So what it's not able to capture for you are all of those moments, and there are definitely moments, with, especially with third parties, when your JavaScript is failing, right. and you can have a great Lighthouse score and still have chunks of the day, chunks of your week, when you still have really unhappy users. Oh, really? Yeah. We're sitting here in the glamorous lounge area of the conference. Yeah, we're, we're out here yeah. in the sponsor area. <laughs> I put some stickers out so people can pick them up. So. Awesome. So yeah, so really user monitoring is kind of like a, it's like a movie. It's like looking at what right. all your users are doing. You probably know all yeah. this, but for the sake of your, your listeners. Yeah, I installed some of that scary third-party JavaScript to watch them, right? Yeah. That's where you can actually drill down and figure out, okay, well, what are, how are your scripts actually behaving in the wild? Right. So when you have unhappy users, is it because the JavaScript is impacting the page? Or is it because their JavaScript isn't playing nice with somebody else's JavaScript? Yeah, it's a good question. So there's a couple of things that are happening with JavaScript. Or there's more than a couple of things, but right. loosely we can put things into two buckets. So you can have JavaScript that is like blocking JavaScript, right. and everybody knows you're supposed to avoid that and load your JavaScript asynchronously whenever you can, or defer it if possible. And blocking JavaScript is obviously a big problem because your pages won't render if right. you've got a bit of blocking JS. Um, and people kind of know about that. But then there's this kind of like lesser known, or in some, for some people it's a completely unknown thing, which is just that you can have non-blocking JavaScript right. that still is making your pages really janky because it has a high blocking CPU time. And that's a metric uh, that's kind of new. It's really uh -huh. only been available in um, kind of the, the, the mainstream performance tools right. in the past little while. Like Google just added it. Uh -huh. uh, we added it at Speaker a few months ago, or maybe, maybe it was a year ago. Time goes by really fast. And so what it's measuring is just how long it takes for the JavaScript on the page to kind of settle down and stop crashing. So like a right. kind of 50 milliseconds after that point. And then uh, you can have pages that have 
no blocking CPU, the JavaScript size is constant, the number of scripts on your page is constant, but your blocking CPU, I'm gonna draw this in the air, because I know people love that in video podcasts, yeah. <laughs> but basically your, your blocking CPU time can be this crazy wavy line on a time series chart, right. because it's it's going up, it's going down, it's performant, right. it's not performant, all depending on, on kind of how it's rendering on the page. I gotcha, so is this something that I'm gonna see or am I am less likely to see on like my high-end developer machine than maybe on a, a phone that has you know just one CPU in it? Yeah, if you if you look at so the the nice thing about you know kind of using synthetic tools or looking at your real user data is with synthetic you can adjust your parameters. You can test across a variety of different devices. And yeah, you're you're going to see higher blocking CPU times on mobile devices, right. but you'll still see them on desktop, right. definitely, especially with third parties. Interesting. So how do you go about figuring out if you have this problem? You do some type of testing. Okay. So you can use Speedcurve, you can use other tools to measure right. this. Um, Google Lighthouse measures it now. You can see when you get your scores, you can see uh, blocking CPU time. Uh, you can see metrics like uh, time to interactive or first CPU idle, all of these metrics that kind of are meant to give you a gauge of right. just, you know, how, how things are performing in terms of your JavaScript settling right. down. So like, yeah, Lighthouse does it. Um, we do it at SpeedCurve. So pretty much any synthetic tool, I think people are, are finally right. catching up and adding this now that it's being supported by the browsers. Gotcha. So I guess the other question is, is are there general rules of thumb that people can just follow to avoid some of these issues in the first place? Yeah, I mean, I think the first rule of thumb is just reduce. It's like it's like it's like the three R's of recycling. It's uh -huh. like you know, reduce first. Like right. make sure you've got the Java. Make sure that all the JavaScript on your page actually needs to be there because right. I look at a lot of waterfalls uh -huh. um, with what I do on a daily basis, and I have calls with customers where we look at waterfalls together with speaker customers we look at their waterfalls together and these are people who are pretty on it and they'll look at a waterfall on a page and they're like why do we have that there right you know what, what is that script even doing i thought we got rid of that a while ago and so yeah. you still got to you know rogue scripts that are just kind of little ghosts that are are, are you know right. possibly hurting performance so that's one monitor now that you can track things like blocking CPU time and you can actually ideally kind of graph them alongside other metrics like total JSIs or um, number of scripts on your page, or, uh, you can actually take this to the vendors themselves and say, look, I know your, your, the size of your script isn't changing and, and the number of requests that you're making isn't changing, right. but you're doing, you're doing this, I'm doing the wavy line in the air again. You're right. doing this to my pages and sometimes vendors just don't know. So I think right. kind of working with vendors and helping them, the best vendors want to be better. Right. So I think having just a friendly relationship with them and letting them know so that they can look into what the issues are at their end. Right. And yeah, then and then doing things like, you know, you can set performance budgets on, yeah. your, on all of your metrics, uh, that, or at least the ones that matter. And, uh, and include, you know, your CPU metrics there as well. Right. One other thing that I'm wondering about is if, because, you know, we have people that work on all, all, all parts of the stack, right? And so let's say that one of our listeners works for one of these vendors. What kinds of things can they test to make sure that it's not going to cause these problems? See, that's more of a developer question. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I couldn't even hazard a guess. Pull, pull it into a page and make sure that it's not yeah, doing like, these kinds of things. And actually test it across a variety of devices, a variety right. of connection types, that sort of thing. Like, don't just kind of do this whole, like, 
you know, yeah, we're kind of just testing on two or three different browsers, two or three different device types. You know, kind of, I think it's something that people can easily lose sight of is just how the cohorts of, of their users, their audience, kind of fall across a lot of different right. geographies and bandwidth types and things like that. Makes sense. What exactly does Speed Curve do in this arena then? So you- uh, thanks for asking. So this is my little, little product pitch. We, uh, we do uh, synthetic and real user monitoring. So um, our customers use our tools to measure a variety of metrics, so kind of do the synthetic testing that I was talking right. about earlier, where you kind of configure different test scenarios, test environments, and then right. gather your data over time, so you uh-huh. can see if you're getting things, if you're, if you're making things better or worse, right. and uh, kind of monitor trends, and including um, specifically tracking individual third parties, which is a really right. helpful thing to be able to do, kind of see who your, your poorest performers are, set right. performance budgets on them, so that you get alerted whenever your uh, metrics go out of bounds for any of those those pro performers. And then in the, on the, the real user monitoring side, is actually just look at the entire breadth of your users right. and see what how they're experiencing your site. And then the kind of cool thing that you can do with RUM, because we're also capturing things like um, bounce rate, or you can add things like your conversion rate data, you can actually do really interesting mashups in your, in your charts right. where you can look at things like the impact of the total JavaScript or the total blocking CPU time on your page or any of these other metrics on conversions and on bounce rate. And right. so, you can, so you can create really, really interesting correlation charts, which I'll be showing in my talk tomorrow. Very cool. So if people want to try out Speed Curve, is there a place they should be going to do that? Yeah, we offer a free 30-day trial. Um, they can just go to our website, speedcurve.com, and there's a big free trial button up in, up in the top right corner, just nice. like every other SaaS vendor out there, so pretty easy to find. If they have any questions at all, they can um, actually email me directly, Tammy at speedcurve.com. Awesome. If, if people want to follow you online, are you on Twitter or anywhere else too? Yep, I'm on Twitter, um, at Tam Everts, T-A-M-E-B-E-R-T-S, okay. uh, is a good place to find me, and then I also write on the Speaker blog, so which is available on our site. Very cool. Well, thanks for coming and talking to me for a few minutes. Yeah, thanks and, for And uh, yeah, I'll encourage people to go check out the talk. I'm assuming they're recording them, and if they're not, then sorry you missed out. <laughs> <laughs> I think they are being recorded. So, I think yeah. so, too. Awesome. Thanks, All right, well, thanks for meeting you. Yeah. We're shaking hands, everybody. There we go. Yeah, <laughs> visually dictate. And then I lean back. It's over. <laughs> Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.